My guest today is John Palfrey, the head of school at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Prior to joining the Andover community in 2012, Mr. Palfrey worked as a professor and vice dean at Harvard Law School, where he also served as the executive director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Mr. Palfrey is a leading scholar and educator and has published extensively on how young people are learning in our digital era, as well as the effects of new technologies on society at large. Mr. Palfrey's books include Bibliotech, Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google, Born Digital, How Children Grow Up in a Digital Age, and his latest, Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, Diversity and Free Expression in Education. John, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on the podcast. As a lawyer and educator, you've written many books about technology, education, and the law. Your recent book, Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, Diversity and Free Expression in Education, addresses issues of free speech and diversity that are currently sources of debate and conflict on college and high school campuses around the country. Can you tell me what inspired you to write this book? You're kind to ask. Thank you. Book projects always come from a place of obviously personal interest, but also a desire to say something broadly in the world based on what we're observing. And for me, I was just struck by how often the conversation about what was going on on campuses would come down to a dispute or a false argument between free expression and diversity. And what I observed was that very often people on the right, conservatives would be talking about the importance of free expression. And those on the left who are focused on diversity might be pitting those things against one another. And the premise of this book in some ways is that it's actually really important both on our campuses and more broadly in our republic and particularly in a democracy that we get both of these things right. And obviously sometimes they do come into tension and there's some challenge there, but I think it's super important that we get both of these principles right on our campuses in part so we send great citizens out into the world. And in your book, you use the term free expression, whereas in the media we hear free speech. And is there a reason why you made this distinction between the two? It's a good point. I think of free expression really in a slightly broader sense, because I think when people say free speech, they often think about just one form of expression, which is to say your voice may be on a soapbox, for instance. But particularly in this technologically mediated age, where so much of our expression is mediated by a device, that's just as much speech, it's just as much expression. And from a First Amendment perspective, getting legal very quickly, it doesn't matter really what the format is so much. And so free expression, I just think is a slightly broader term. And I also think To my mind, in some ways, it speaks to the power of expression and the importance of that in a broader sense. But yes, I think you're right that they could be more or less interchangeable. And to the subtitle of your book and connecting it to diversity and free expression, you talk about safe spaces and brave spaces. And can you elaborate on how that's all connected? Absolutely. So what really triggered the book in a sense was a series of flashpoints that I've observed on campuses, including our own here and certainly at Harvard where I used to work and at lots of campuses, as we know, Berkeley, maybe most famously Middlebury recently and and so forth. You could give dozens of examples of them. And one of them, of course, is the safe spaces debate, which is, does it make sense in an academic setting to provide safe spaces for students. And one of the things that has surprised me most about coming to a high school and living now, as I do with 1,100 teenagers, is that they use the word safety very differently than I do and adults do. And safety to my mind is, you know, when I think about public safety, I think about having shuttles across campus so that we protect kids from physical harm, say, in a city. I went to Harvard College. It was in the city of Cambridge and you got on the shuttle late at night because you didn't want to be harmed by somebody who might be an armed robber, for instance. Safety 
safety for kids does include that, but really extends much more broadly to that when kids on campus are talking about it. And some of it does go to psychological safety. And so there's sort of an interesting definitional difference, generational difference that I've found. That's one thing. The other thing then I would say is the idea that we create safe spaces as part of learning environments is something that has been a flashpoint for debate. And again, those who favor the free expression side of this discussion often will say you shouldn't have safe spaces for kids. Very famously, the University of Chicago's Dean of Students sent out a letter about not supporting that language has changed a little bit initially, safe spaces now, intellectual safe spaces for kids, whereas others say that it's a crucial part of the educational environment that we create. And I wanted to dig in on that distinction, that debate. To go to the brief spaces, how does that connect in conjunction with? So the argument that I make in this book is that actually safe spaces have a place on our high school campuses, certainly a residential one like this at Andover, and certainly in my view at university campuses as well, as do brave spaces. And my argument in the book is that you can and should have both. So for safe spaces, there's a time and a place for them that I think is actually crucial for many of our kids. And this is in part because we have diversified our campuses in the way that we have, and that there are students who feel vulnerable coming to these campuses that have been predominantly white, have been predominantly wealthy, have been places where if you are an LGBTQ student, for instance, you're coming out during the time that you're there, having an environment where there are a set of rules for that engagement and you know you will not be criticized for who you are and that you can talk about, just take the coming out example, as somebody who is coming out as gay or transgender, having an environment that allows for that, that is safe for kids, in my mind, is crucial on these campuses. I can get more into that. At the same time, I also think that if we don't stretch kids, if we don't create discomfort and uncomfort for kids in the context of a learning environment, that's also a mistake. So my argument is that campuses also need brave spaces where there will be discomfort of that sort, in part because we are preparing kids for a world in which the environment is going to be broader. Learning from people across difference is crucial. And so it's, to my mind, a finding of a balance between those things for kids from an educator's perspective that we need to figure out. And during your time at Andover or even starting at Harvard, have you seen a difference in the perception of students and their understanding of what free speech is and what diversity is? And you mentioned in your chapter on diversity about implicit biases Mm -hmm. that we may have and how much you think the media has influenced the way people think about these concepts. Sure, hugely. I mean, I think the discussion of diversity here on our campus for high school students is very, very different than the discussion of diversity that you and I would have had in our high school experience. And I think that's a very positive thing. I think it's actually somewhat more grounded in truth. It's also more grounded in some scientific work. The implicit bias work, I think, is some of the most scientifically sound of the research in the diversity space. Mazra and Banaji at Harvard would be one example of people who have done great, great work in it. They've shown for sure that we all have implicit or unconscious biases of various sorts. And you can prove that to yourself online on a quiz that Professor Banaji puts up. And I can't imagine anybody going through that process and thinking, okay, I don't have any bias because it's just not not possible. So that's part of what we teach kids. You know, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of being human. And then we have to figure out how do you deal with it? You mentioned that technology has played a significant role in part to your use of the term free expression. And then you've also mentioned how students have been influenced by just growing up with technology Mm -hmm. and how they perceive what safety may be. How do you think that media has affected campuses in terms of having this type of dialogue in brave spaces? 
It's a great question. I think the answer is probably not for the better. Mm -hmm. So I think actually one of the challenges that our kids face is that when they have hard conversations online, they often don't have the social cues. You and I are sitting across from one another now. If you don't like my answer, I might see it in your facial expression. Or if you are asking something in a particularly kind way, I might hear inflection in your voice or otherwise, right? And I'll react to that. Online, you don't have many of those cues, not the physical views, not the audible cues in most cases. So often kids are responding to things without some of these cues and it can lead to debate that's actually not that productive or healthy. And I think we've all been in flame wars online or regretted some email that we sent too quickly. Psychologists call this the disinhibition effect, which is when you're mediated by a device as opposed to face-to-face, you are less inhibited in what you will say to somebody else. Often that you might be meaner. It's why we see some forms of bullying that play out in the cyber environment as well. So I think by and large, it's been a challenge for kids to have this kind of debate online, which will then often color the conversation that they're having face to face. So I much prefer for serious topics not to have it online and social media. I much prefer to get people in a room and to work it out face to face because you do have those other cues. Yes, I agree. And it seems that the more we are online, especially on our phones, we miss a lot of chances to practice receiving and attending to such physical and social cues. They can be quite subtle at times. I also think, John, that in addition to decreased exposure to such social cues, our use of mediated technologies has impacted our exposure to receiving a variety of perspectives and opinions on issues and ideas. Specifically, I think about how curated our news feeds can be, and I wonder how that's impacting our inclination and our mindset for receiving different viewpoints and having a healthy debate. What are your thoughts on this? It's a wonderful question and one that's been much debated by those who study social media and technology and democracy, as you know. On the one hand, there's been the argument that Cass Sunstein popularized earlier, the idea of the daily me, that we effectively curate for ourselves a particular set of views and we are very good at narrow casting to ourselves based on views that we like. Whereas others have said, and there have been some studies by Pew and others that have pushed this other side, which is that actually people who are online are actually pretty good at getting other kinds of points of view and engaging with other viewpoints. I think it's probably closer to the Cass Sunstein perspective that I think by and large, we do try to narrow cast to ourselves, whereas some people who are very thoughtful about it might try to bring different views together. But that's there's an empirical discussion there. I think the key from my perspective as an educator is to try to get kids to see the problem and then to see if they can create for themselves a media diet that's broader and that brings different viewpoints together. One way I do that in my own teaching, I teach a U.S. history course with a colleague here. And one thing we hand out to kids every week is a copy of The Week, which is a print publication. And as you may know, it's a publication that brings together viewpoints from different places and different perspectives. So every news story has how it's been covered by different perspectives. And that's how we talk about current events. And I think that's just kind of a sense of modeling to kids that they actually need to do that work. We all need to do that work and to try to hear different perspectives. So it sounds like not only do you provide the actual content, but by being with one another in a classroom, there is sort of this, I think what Cass Sunstein calls serendipitous interaction, where you can encounter people's responses to perhaps what news is presented in the week. And then from there, you have these discussions that no one really knows where they may be going. It's exactly right. And it's such a gift to be able to be, you know, in a classroom with 12 kids. And in this case, we have two teachers in the room. It's kind of ridiculous in a way, but it is the wonderful 
you know, part of these kinds of educations where you can manage it and you're together around a table and you have, in this case, you've got the entire story of American history in the background, then you've got the current events and you can encounter different people's points of view. And I think the job of teachers in that setting is to try to have our own political views in the background. I'm always happy to respond what I think, but in general, I try not to lead with that and really try to encourage kids to say, if you have a different point of view, let's talk about it constructively. Obviously, you have to be respectful and civil to one another, but I do hope that you will encounter some views that you don't agree with walking in the room. Maybe every once in a while, you'll change your mind. And that's actually quite important. You've given some examples where free expression and diversity have been perceived as being at odds with each other, which then results in situations where students don't feel safe and it robs them of good dialogue and conversations. Can you provide an example or examples where you've seen both work well and in concert with each other, where students have felt safe and brave to partake in meaningful exchange of ideas? Absolutely. And the good news is I think they happen every single day in our colleges and universities and on our high school campuses that when we bring together kids from lots of different backgrounds and if we set up great classroom environments or a great forum in the evening or you set up, a, in our case, we call it all school meeting where kids interact in a meaningful way with people who come from a different background. Think about faith as an example. That's a form of diversity. Muslim kids sit next to the Jewish kids, sit next to the Buddhist kid and the Christian who's over there. That conversation about faith that can happen every day in these environments as a crucial part of their learning happens all the time. And I think that's exactly what it's about, combining those two ideas. Those are some great opportunities for organic and meaningful exchange of ideas. And yet, I suspect that once students leave those forums or assemblies that they go to their phones and get on an app. And it makes me wonder if you were to put on a different hat <laughs> and if you were a designer or an architect of some popular app that a lot of students spend a lot of time on, what features might you have that could exchange these productive conversations and dialogues that happen face to face that could go on in these online spaces? It's a wonderful question. I'm not sure anybody who's done this well. It's been a discussion many times, as I'm sure you know, in lots of companies and by a lot of academics who want to see the online environment be a good extension of the offline. It's very hard to do. One of the things that I find when you talk to kids about this and you describe this problem of the disinhibition effect, they're very quick to say, actually, that's how we use emojis that emojis are the way that we add some social cues at the end of our comments. So if you say nice shoes, nice shoes could be a dig, like you have terrible shoes, or it could be actually, I really like your shoes. There are ways to use emojis to indicate which of the nice shoes you're trying to say, right? And so kids in a way are clever and they hack these systems in ways that I think are good. So that's just one point mm -hmm. is that somewhat, to some degree, what I might say the designer is create opportunities for kids to figure that out and create the kinds of tools that they will learn and hack and then create. One of the things I was interested in earlier in this year, one of our students created some Andover specific emojis that people could use, which is kind of a cool thing, right? And anyway, I think, you know, in different contexts, that was in part because somebody had created an open enough platform that other people could create the emoji that would be specific to a community and then allow that to be used in the public platforms as sort of the idea of open application programming interfaces, open APIs. And I think that's a wonderful design principle, right? Which is create the way in which people can make their own context and cues. So I think that would be the primary advice I'd give. 
Your book is relevant to anyone who cares about democracy, not just in the United States, but the conversation that's happening around in the world and what's going on. But I think what struck me and really resonated with me is that a lot of what you had to say where it's okay to feel uncomfortable having someone disagree with your viewpoint and it's okay to engage in this kind of conversation and to push each other a little bit and not necessarily be destructive and have these flame wars but to have that conversation. And I think that there's a hesitancy for students to have that online. And I wonder if that is in part due to a lack of practice at argumentation. We all want our kids to develop critical thinking skills. We value that so much and we talk about it so much, but there's a subset of critical thinking that is the art of being able to argue well, and that's not to fight, but to actually argue and debate and to engage with a person who holds an opposing point of view and create a persuasive argument that may counter some of those points, all of those points, and even perhaps change minds. What are your thoughts about this, John, and its place in a curriculum? I couldn't agree more with everything you said. I think it's really essential that we figure out how, in the context of an educational environment where we help kids figure out themselves how to argue productively, we don't agree broadly in our society in one country or any country. That's just part of the idea of being human is that we're going to have different points of view and we need to coexist. And I think that's really what's at the center of this book is saying that we need both liberty and equality in a republic and we also need that in smaller communities. And in some ways you can put the idea of free expression in the liberty bucket and you can put the diversity point in the equality bucket. And those things actually have to be able to come together in order for democracies to work out well. And if we are not helping students build those muscles early on, I think mm -hmm. we're making a mistake. And so I think if we allow students to shy away from those discussions, I think that's, you know, sometimes you need that for psychological safety and so forth. I totally get it. You don't want to be arguing all day long entirely. But I think the art of doing that for some period of time and actually figuring out how to do it really well and maybe sometimes convincing somebody and maybe sometimes being convinced and actually growing to know and respect that person is so important. As a lawyer, as a law professor before this, you see it all the time. It's really, it's a crucial part of law school. It's certainly part of our legal system. The adversarial system is exactly this, right? The whole point is each side gets to hire their lawyer who is an adversary with the other one. That's the point. And you see the Supreme Court justices often completely coming from different perspectives, bitterly disagreeing in written opinions or whatever, and yet being good friends and being really great colleagues. So I think it's doable, but it is a set of skills that you actually have to build. And I think that's important for our democracy. Yeah. And it's quite challenging. I looked up the common core standards and if I may read the definition of critical thinking. Mm. It's being able to write arguments to support claims with clear reasons and relevant evidence, introduce claims, acknowledge alternate or opposing claims, and organize the reasons and evidence logically, support claims with logical reasoning and relevant evidence using accurate, credible sources and demonstrating an understanding of the topic. Hard to argue with that. I think it's something <laughs> that we all need that for sure. Yes, and if I may share some statistics that illustrate how well students are actually developing and building these skills. As you may know, the U.S. Department of Education publishes a national report card called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And in this report card, you get a sense of how well students are performing in a variety of subjects and a lot of the skills that support learning in these subjects. In this report card, the writing section assesses a lot of the skills you mentioned regarding argumentation, critical thinking, debate, and a sample question a 12th grader would need to respond to in this test. 
is to write a letter to their local council member where they need to argue for or against a particular issue. And they would need to support their argument. And in addition, they need to defend it against arguments the opposing side may make. And so this really mirrors a lot of the skills that you mentioned that Supreme Court justices have, where they're arguing for a particular issue while at the same time attending to what an opposing justice may say about it and going back and forth. The way that the U.S. Department of Education reports the results is they say that the students are either at a basic level, at a proficient level, or at an advanced level. And the latest results for public school students in eighth grade, 21% of students in eighth grade performed below a basic level. In contrast, 8% of students in non-public schools, that's private or Catholic schools, et cetera, perform below a basic level. For 12th graders, 23% of students in public schools performed below a basic level, whereas in non-public schools, only 4% of students perform below a basic level. I'd love to hear your reaction to the test and the results of these tests. It's a really good point, and it's obviously quite depressing in terms of the statistics, the fact that the failure rate is as high as it is, and then also noting the inequality in our education system, which is certainly a major factor. And sitting where I do at the very elite end of even the independent school world, you know, obviously we have to pay a lot of attention to that. I think one one answer to that is that all of our elite schools need to be broadly open to students coming from all over. And Andover, I think that its most distinctive thing is it's a need-blind school, and so regardless Regardless of whether someone can pay, they if they can get in, they come to Andover. And that, I think, is essential. So we need our strongest schools to be very aggressive in terms of reaching out to kids who otherwise might not come to these schools. And that's one element of the inequality you know, equation that we have to try to solve for. But I think you're right also to say that schools that are doing this well also need to be beacons for schools that are doing it less well and find ways to translate some of those ideas. It's, to be truthful, often hard because people will look at a school like this and say, the things you can do with the resources you have are really nice for the kids who get to go there, but it's not something that we can translate. I hope that the answer to that is in fact, these things don't cost money. They actually are an approach that they are a set of commitments and they're something that we need to strive for in every one of our educational institutions. So that's really the best I can offer is to say, I think we need to take really great teaching and make sure it happens in as many of our schools as we can in the country. And then to make the best of our schools as broadly open as we can to all kids who will thrive in those environments. And there is some great promise where there are cognitive psychologists, developmental psychologists who have worked in this area and have found that interventions, not major ones, where there are sort of prompts throughout different lessons that do promote this type of thinking, where you are eventually able to hold your position, understand what a claim is, and at the same time, listen to someone else's position and sort of have a nice dialogue and sort of go back and forth, which will ultimately lead to a further understanding of what the topic is and of each other. And so for me, my heart is in promoting that more throughout all these educational institutions. So perhaps what you say in your book about safe spaces and brave spaces, that occurs more naturally. And that's a skill that people can tap into and say, hey, I can't engage in this discussion and I want to. I hope so. And I hope you will post alongside the podcast a few of those links and share them with me so I can share with our faculty. We should all learn from that literature. I also think one thing you point to is the one thing that every school has is time. We all have time with our kids and maybe not enough time and you know some schools get more than others, but you can use that time 
either well or in a lousy fashion, right? If you're an individual teacher. And I think your point about no cost interventions that are just thoughtful ones are a way to use that time. And I've realized it's much easier to do in a classroom with 12 kids than a classroom with 40 kids and a classroom where kids are getting enough breakfast and kids that aren't and so forth. So I get the challenges there. But I do think that focusing on the things that are our commonalities and that we can leverage like really good interventions and the time that everybody has may be part of the solution. That's a great point about time and being mindful about the time that we spend and how we spend it and combining that with low cost interventions. There's some promise. John, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I learned a lot and really enjoyed our time. Thank you. I couldn't be more happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you.